Today's text is Psalm 2. You can find that on page 448 in the Bibles in front of you. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. I love this time of the year. I know a lot of you do too. Um, One of uh, my favorite things about the Christmas season, of course, there are so many things about the Christmas season that I love, but one uh, one of which is, you know, seeing so many people, so many houses decorating. You see the lights go up, the decorations. It doesn't matter uh, what social class you're in and oftentimes nationalities, even around the world, are decorating for Christmas. I love that thing, that that part about Christmas. I love being able to, to uh, drive through the neighborhood, even yesterday, and seeing more Christmas lights up. One of the things that I enjoy every year are some of the Christmas songs that uh, come on the radio. Not just Christian worship uh, uh, Christmas songs, but uh, but actually the secular Christmas songs. Not all of them, all right? Some of them are exhausting, like Last Christmas, the worst Christmas song, I believe, our family quickly changes uh, the dial, if you have a dial anymore on the radio. I don't know. Uh, so, but there are so many songs that, uh, that, that we've grown to love. Uh, but at the same time, a- as life goes on and you begin to experience more of, more of just sadness and more of what the world has coming at us, a lot of those same songs become daggers to us. One of which is Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. I love that song, the music, the tune. But when you get to the line, from now on our troubles will be out of sight, that serves as a bit of a dagger, does it not? It creates an emotional and a spiritual tension that we can find ourselves in. When will it be that from now on our troubles will be out of sight? When will that be? That song can become empty just with that one line. Many of you can probably relate this season. The hard part is that the Christmas season always brings with it some sort of magic in the air. A nostalgia that we feel. Yet you might sense that at this moment in your life, a lot of those things that we sing at Christmas just simply don't seem to ring true. There's this collision between joy and grief that happens at Christmas time. 
It can be the most joyful season, but it can also be the most painful. The sentimentality with the sights and the sounds of Christmas exacerbate the loneliness or the pain of losing someone you love and not being able to experience that with them during the season. And if you find yourself there as a Christian, I want you to hear this, that it's okay. We sometimes fall into the trap of believing that it's not Christian to feel the heaviness and the sadness that can come with the season. When you know that really there's so much to be grateful for and there's so much joy to be had as we think about the coming of Jesus. But listen, for every joy to the world we sing at Christmas, we also need to sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow. Put to flight. Well, over the years, especially here at Philadelphia, I've grown to love Advent more and more because Advent embraces this collision. It rejoices in hope of what's already taken place with the giving of Jesus. But it also gives us room to cry, to contemplate, to take a deep breath and pray once again with God's people. Come, Lord Jesus. It allows us to stand shoulder to shoulder with God's people in the Old Testament even and and sing their songs that they sang or read their songs. One of which is the psalm that John just read, Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a psalm that would be read in anticipation of a king for God's people. One that they were looking forward to in light of their extremely difficult circumstances. They were often harassed and mistreated, attacked, maligned among neighboring countries. Most of the time it was their own fault. And they were eventually conquered and dispersed among pagan nations. It's often thought that the purpose of Psalm 2 is to celebrate the coronation or the anointing of a king that came in David's line. And such a coronation is shadowed by intense conflict, as we read. To be honest, you may have, if you were to be honest, you may have thought that this was an odd psalm to read on a Christmas Advent sermon or to preach on this for anticipation. It's not your typical feel-good psalm, but if you find yourself this Christmas season feeling the sting of loss or the fear of failing health, the anxiety that comes from reading the news, the burden of family drama during the holidays, maybe a sibling rivalry or depression or simply the doldrums, let the anticipation of the king in Psalm 2 bring you true cheer this Christmas. We're going to look at this psalm in three different sections, and then I want us to see how relevant this is to our lives today. I hope to give us some points of application at the end before we take the Lord's Supper together. So here's the roadmap today for Psalm 2. First, we're going to see a global rebellion in verses 1 through 3. And then we're going to see a godly response in verses 4 through 9. And then we're going to see a gracious warning in verses 10 through 12. So look at verses one through three with me as we look at a global rebellion. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Well, if you know anything from 
the testimony uh, about the testimony of the scriptures and from just the testimony of human history. And, and even if brushed up on your current events today, you'll be able to affirm that literally everyone has been eager to take part in this rebellion in verses one through three. There's been a restlessness in the air throughout all of human history. If you look back on history, humans can agree on very little uh, in life. We actually even uh, can see hatred towards each other in general. At the mass of humanity and history, uh, history books are full of different stories of how we just try to rule over one another. And if you were to get down to brass tacks with most world leaders throughout history and even today who've wielded a lot of power and influence, you would find that they had a genuine distrust of everyone else. But on this one thing we read in Psalm one, uh, Psalm two, one through three, on this one thing, they all agreed that the rule of the Lord is like bonds and cords that are tying them up. Literally, everyone is in agreement The Lord and his anointed will not rule over us. The Lord will not decide what is best for me. His law will not be my law. He will not decide what I should do with my life. He will not decide for me what is wise. He will not decide for me what is pleasurable. He will he will not decide how this life is going to go for me. Is that not the the theme today is you were to just if you're just canvas the newsfeed or just see what's happening on social media no one can tell me what i need to do when did this rebellion start i think we have plenty of smart people in here who know their bible it's been going on for a very long time from the days of adam and eve when adam and eve told god essentially you don't tell us what we're going to do all right We can decide for ourselves what's best for us. And at that moment, the DNA of Adam and Eve and their rebellion was then passed down to every single person who's ever walked the planet. We see it immediately starting with Cain killing his brother Abel. We see it in the times of Noah when it says that God looked down and saw that the intentions of people's hearts were evil all the time. You see at the Tower of Babel when when God when when the people were trying to build a, a tower, a monument to themselves to make a name for themselves. The judges in the Bible where it says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Then the kings of Israel and of Judah most ruled wickedly. They essentially gave their people the free free reign, did not call for obedience to the law of God. Yet all of these rebellions and all of these rebels, as shocking and as significant as they were, they were only tremors of the greatest display of rebellion in the history of mankind. You see, in verse two, it tells us who all of this rebellion and all of this animosity is aimed at. The Lord and his anointed. The Hebrew word for anointed is translated into Greek as Messiah. All of history's animosity has been aimed towards God and his Messiah. Their hatred and rebellion was against Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary and grew up to show us what it was like to live a rebellion-free life. He lived his life like the guy in Psalm 1. We're actually... We're actually supposed to, I believe, many believe, read Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together. 
like great columns as you're walking through to walk into the Psalms. And Jesus came and he was the the righteous one in Psalm one who meditated on God's word, who delighted in God's word. And that was Jesus. His mode of operation in his life was not my will, but your will be done. He was constantly calling us to come underneath the rule of a sovereign Lord, calling us out of the kingdom of ourselves and into the kingdom of God. He called others to forsake their ways, and yet the rulers who all despised at that time, despised each other. They distrusted one another. They conspired and they took counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. And the peoples plotted to get rid of the king of kings. And even when Pilate asked the people who had been plotting and raging, shall I crucify your king? They replied, we have no king but Caesar. And off they went with the Psalm 1 man who was the Psalm 2 king. And they crucified him on the hill called Golgotha. And this isn't really just only about leaders and kings, like it says in verse two. Verse one mentions the nations and the peoples. Ephesians two tells us that all of us have followed the course of this world. And apart from God's intervention, we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Every one of us has participated in what can be described as a global rebellion. The rebellion that started long ago in the garden. And over time, everyone who has ever been born has joined in this rebellion against the one who was born that first Christmas Eve. Did you notice what verse one called this plotting? Coming off the the heels of the sermon series in Ecclesiastes, it might have given you an awareness of this word, but did you see it? It says that the people's plot in vain. That's what all of their plans were. They're striving after the wind. All efforts to overthrow God are futile efforts. He cannot be overthrown. He uh, overthrown. He cannot be dethroned. We are intended to hear in the psalmist's voice here some shock, some outrage. Perhaps even some confusion because of who this global rebellion is against the Lord and his anointed. Why would anyone want to rebel against this good, loving, covenant keeping God? But we're also to see that this global rebellion is all in vain. And it brings us to the next section, a godly response. In verses four through nine, read it with me. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We should see a godly response. And I believe we're to see this as a swift yet measured response. What does it say that God does when people conspire against him? Verse four. He laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs. 
This, this, is, this is not the response that the peoples and the kings of the earth would hope for, right? If you think you have a really good plan to overthrow this king and the reply back is laughter, you may need a better response. In, in the movie, you've seen the movie, the TV show, the movie, it, it's always this part where some guy gets up the courage to, to punch the really big bodybuilder kind of guy in the face. And what does the guy typically do? He smiles or he laughs, right? You, you need a better plan than just doing this. So how does God respond to those trying to usurp his throne? He laughs them off. There are only three times in the scriptures that we're told that God laughs in the Bible. Did you know that? Three times we're told God laughs. Psalm 2, right here. Psalm 37, 13, and Psalm 59, 8. And they are always in response to when God's enemies either threaten his people or they plan to take over his throne. Why does God laugh? It's because picking a fight with God is foolish. He never loses. How else does he respond? The Verse 4, the Lord holds them in derision. Derision meaning mockery and ridicule. They are a laughing stock. It's like the heavens are watching and they're watching all of this take place on the earth and they're seeing this and the Lord holds them in derision. They're a laughing stock and he holds them there. They can't change their situation by might. One famous example of an opponent of Christianity was the Roman Emperor Diocletian. He reigned in 284 to 305 A.D. He was such a determined enemy of Christians that he persecuted the church mercilessly and he proclaimed that he had defeated Christianity. He ordered the making of a medal with this inscription, the name of Christianity being extinguished. And he also set up monuments on the frontier of his empire with these with inscriptions like this. Diocletian. Jovian, Maximian, Herculeus, Caesareus, Augusti. That's a long name. For having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ. Where is he today? Well, we know he is dead and gone. A footnote on the pages of history. The fame and glory of Jesus Christ is spread over all of the earth. The Lord holds him in derision. In verse 6, he says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Spurgeon said it well. He said, despite your malice, despite your tumultuous gatherings, despite the wisdom of your counsels and despite the craft of your lawgivers, he has already done that which the enemy seeks to prevent. While they are proposing, he has disposed the matter. Jehovah's will is done and man's will frets and raves in vain. We're to see a swift and measured response from God. When we read verses four through six, we should note the laughter of God and essentially see that the the fight was over before it even began. He says, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The fascinating thing about this psalm is that not only do we hear God the father speak in this psalm when he says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. We also hear God, the son speak. The anointed one, the Messiah. He lets us in on something that was said to him in the heavens. 
Verse 7 says, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The announced king gives the second part of the declaration by telling us what God in heaven has said to him. You are my son. Today, on the day of coronation, on the day of anointing, I have become your father. What's he talking about? Well, Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, attributes this psalm to King David in Acts chapter 4, verse 25. So David here is presenting the promised king from his line in 2 Samuel 7, Yahweh promised David that there would be one coming in his in, in his lineage who would actually be a king and he would establish a forever throne and that Yahweh would be this king's father and that this king would have a very unique and special relationship with the God of heaven. And God's people were very aware of this. Those who cared about God and his promises to his people were looking for the king who would come and, and who would rule like that. But if you read through the history of Israel and Judah's kings, you'll see that it didn't go well. There were some very wicked kings. And it's meant to give God's people a growing desire to say, please just show me the good king. So a fair question is, when did this conversation take place? When did it happen that the Lord said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. When did Jesus become king? Because though he was eternally God, he was fully God from eternity past, he was eternally God's son, but he wasn't always king. There was a day in history when God said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And from that moment on, he began his eternal reign as the final Davidic king. So I know that with this being an Advent sermon, you might say, your guess might be, well, it was when Jesus was born. He was born a king. That's a great guess. And it would have been my guess not too long ago. The Magi came looking for Jesus and and they went to King Herod of all people, probably the worst person to go to, but they went looking for the king. And they said, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? But he had not been made king yet. And if you guess at Jesus' baptism, where, Jesus, where God declares that Jesus was his son and was well pleased with him, that would not be it. That would not be when this took place. It wasn't at his transfiguration. And it wasn't when he was lifted up on the cross with the sign above him saying, King of Jews, King of the Jews. No, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells a group of Jewish men who were gathered at the synagogue in Antioch in Acts 13.32, when this conversation took place. He says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, Today I have begotten you. That means that according to Acts 13, when God raised Jesus from the dead, he was then enthroned as the eternal Davidic king. And this psalm in Acts 13 and Hebrews 1, where it quotes this verse as well. It's not saying that God created Jesus. 
Jesus was and is eternally God. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Psalm 2-7, this verse, verse 7, means that there was a day when Jesus was not and that God begot Jesus, as in where God created Jesus the Son. No, that's blasphemy. What this is saying is that there was an actual day in history when God in heaven told Jesus the Son that today your eternal rule and reign as king begins, just as I promised David. This was the day that God resurrected Jesus from the dead and enthroned him or installed him as the messianic ruler with all the full authority and rights and privileges that come with that office. He was begotten, that is, enthroned and installed as the son, a messianic term on the day of his resurrection. So this is a reference to the king being installed. And the father having that conversation with the son. And do you know what else was said to Jesus on that day when God said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. On the day that he was, uh, he started his rule as the Davidic king. Look at verses 8 and 9. God tells him what to pray for. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them, that is, their proud rebellion, with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The anointed one, the king, the son of God is the one who can pray and know that whatever he asks will be given to him. What do you want? Ask for the nations. Ask for all of them. Ask for the nations. The king is invited to pray to conquer the world, to subdue all rebellions. And praise God that this conversation took place and that this was the heart of our God. You know why we're here? Many of the early church fathers saw this prayer being answered when the Son of God broke your pride and my pride. And shattered our illusions of self-reliance. So God has answered that prayer in breaking us. Those who have been born again. God broke your proud rebellion and calmed your rage and shattered your illusions of self-reliance. And today rebels are rushing into the kingdom of God because the sun has broken them too. And they've recognized their need to come to the sun. To kiss the sun as we're told in the text. But God is not done answering that prayer, which brings us to the third section, a gracious warning. Verses 10 through 12. Read it with me. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Notice how the next verse started. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. God, in Psalm 2, is putting the world on notice. Be warned. Be wise. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. How do we do this? Kiss the sun. This is a gracious warning. 
gracious in that. As one man named John Dunn, he said, let us consider and magnify the goodness of God. When he read this verse, he said, let's consider and magnify the goodness of God that hath brought us in that we may kiss the son. That our God, who is love, can in justice be angry and let us behold how easily this anger departs. A kiss removes it. This is a gracious warning. Kiss the sun. It's an appeal. Something really interesting happens in the text. It's unusual for a text written in this time period. David actually borrows a word from the neighboring nations in verse 12. When he uses the word son, he uses the Aramaic word for son. He writes it in Aramaic. But this text, the rest of the text is written in Hebrew. Peter Craigie points out, he says, what makes it more intriguing is that the author of the psalm has already used the Hebrew word for son in verse seven. When speaking about his king. But Aramaic is known to have been used in Syria, Palestine, for, from at least as far back as the ninth century B.C. The words are addressed in the mouth of the poet here in Psalm 2 to foreign nations and to kings who are Aramaic, Aramaic speaking. And it's possible that the poet deliberately uses a foreign word. He's borrowing a word from their own language to dramatize his intent at this point. It's almost like he's saying, read my lips. You had better kiss the sun, my son, before my wrath is kindled. It's a warning shot to all those who oppose God's king. This use of the Aramaic word is a deliberate appeal. It's almost a dare. The close of this psalm demands sincere submission and humility and loyalty to Yahweh's king. For a time... The king is granting amnesty. He's offering an opportunity to be blessed by taking refuge in the sun. For enemies who hear foretaste of their impending doom and the righteous laughter of God, he still offers an escape for you. Be warned. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It's not too late. But soon enough it will be. But not yet. Kiss the sun and you'll be free from the terror of his laughter and welcomed into the everlasting wonder of his joy. So I want to offer a few points of application before we take the Lord's Supper together. This is for those who are unbelievers this morning. Those of you who have not trusted Christ to save you from your sins. I've never looked at what Jesus did at the cross and said that he did that because my sins put him there and that he died for you. This is for you. And you may have heard this morning that God laughs at the scoffers. And that's true. And though his wrath is sure and final and eternal. Ezekiel 33 tells us how God feels about crushing the wicked. It says, though he laughs at the scoffers and those trying to usurp his power, he says, as I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
He takes no delight in crushing the wicked. As a matter of, fa- a matter of fact, what Jesus did for you, unbeliever, is he actually took the divine threats of the end of the Psalm to, of Psalm 2 upon himself. He was broken with rods of iron for you, driven into his hands and into his feet. He was shattered to pieces upon the cross. He endured this. He perished, though, under the divine wrath of God in your place. And then God rose Jesus from the dead and made him the eternal king to which God is calling you today to turn to him, to run to him, to bow to him and to kiss the son. And that's your only point of application today. There's no other help coming for you. Run to Jesus. Christ the king is calling for your allegiance and your devotion today. A second point of application, this would be for Christians. Do not withhold any area of your life from the Lord. The good news of the reign of this king is that he is a good king. And it's under this king's supervision that we can truly flourish in life. It's where true freedom is found. It's the only place where we can lie down in green pastures. The only place where bonds and cords of sin and death will be truly broken. It's the only place that we can find true comfort. It's the only place that we can find freedom and peace with God. So take refuge in him. Do not hide areas of your life from him. Because we know his heart. We know that there is no other place that we would rather be than under his authority. A third point of application. We must dedicate our lives to calling others to repent and kiss the sun. Joy to the world, the Lord <clears throat> is come. I need my water. Let earth receive its king. Not everyone has received him. Millions of people. It's right there, Jess. There you go. This. this will be better for all of us. Agua. Bueno. Uh, We sing the song, Joy to the World, the Lord has come, let earth receive its king. Not everyone has received him. Millions of people sing this song, but they don't have a clue. They don't know. We sing, let every heart prepare him room, and you have friends and neighbors and co-workers and family who have no room in their hearts for him. The Lord in his sovereignty has placed you where you are, not by happenstance, but by appointment. And you are wired the way that you are wired for a purpose, because God intends to use you that way to warn others, to call them to repent and kiss the sun. And lastly, this was a gem for me in this passage. Do not fear what you are watching in the world today. I want to spend a moment directing your attention to verse four again. One more time. It says, he who sits in the heaven laughs. For those of you who know me and Jessica, my guess is that you've caught on to something about us. We we laugh a lot. A lot of times we laugh at the wrong times. 
Uh, Corey, I'm guessing it, one of the things he'll miss about preaching uh, so much is <clears throat> hearing Jessica laugh uh, at his sermons. Like, not at him, but in, this, in moment, appropriate moments, maybe inappropriate moments during his sermon. There are times I have laughed so hard that I, I couldn't breathe. Some of you may have been there, or maybe you're crying. You're, you've got tears in your eyes. <clears throat> My guess is that when you experience this, though, it almost certainly happened when you were with other people. <clears throat> in general, I never really do this when I'm alone. Is there anything that's a greater joy kill than watching, trying to watch a funny movie with somebody who doesn't think it's funny? I mean, try, if you don't know, try watching Napoleon Dynamite with Peter Barber. Okay. <clears throat> You'll see what, what I mean. And probably my favorite memory in a movie theater was when we went to watch Elf with Jessica's family. Uh, and she comes from a long line of great laughers. There are health benefits to laughter. It's a way, whether we intend to or not, to communicate to others. There's a social dynamic when it comes to laughing. Laughter communicates something without words, doesn't it? It is to say something more than meets the eye is going on here. It's not something that you can quite capture with words. According to Psychology Today's summary, this may be the only time you'll hear anyone quote psychology today in a sermon. It says laughter is one of the distinguishing features of human beings and may be the most contagious of all emotional experiences. Yet little is known about the mechanisms behind it. Why am I talking about laughter? When God laughs, he does so for our sake. To communicate something to us. He laughs to give off signals. Signals that are horrible to his enemies and wonderful to his friends. For us this morning who belong to Jesus, God's laughter is intended to bring great comfort. David Mathis said it this way. He said, God laughs to dispel our fears. He laughs to remind us that no purpose of his can be thwarted. We do not fear along with the rebel nations because we have heard his voice. We have received his promise and wonder upon wonder, undeserving as we are. He has set his favor on us in his son. And who are we to dishonor him by not receiving the promise of his word? You are my son. He's opened our ears, spoken to us and given us the spirit to receive his, his words as sons. God's laughter isn't just side splitting, it's world splitting. His enemies cower in fear. His friends rise in comfort. His laughter warns cosmic traitors of their impending doom while reminding weak saints that their best is yet to come. So when you watch the news and fear grips you, when you feel your bodies beginning to slowly decay or your minds are beginning to lose its grip on reality or lose its memory, when you feel like the enemies of God are raging and winning and taking counsel together and plotting against Christ and his church, the swell of their conspiracy is soon overpowered by the happiest and most comforting sound in the world, resounding down from heaven itself, the mighty mirth of God and righteous laughter. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The laughter of God is simultaneously horrible and wonderful, horrible for those who oppose him and wonderful, wonderful for those in his house, for his children, for his people, 
for those who hear his laughter, the greatest joys in all the world and echo back his contagious laughter in their own. For now, his enemies may chuckle with laughter of unbelief as they did at Jesus. But we, like the excellent wife of Proverbs 31, can laugh at the time to come. And in doing so, our confidence in God to handle our greatest possible troubles that we face in this life. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Now, I'd like to say that taking the Lord's Supper together is basically an opportunity to essentially sing Psalm 2 together as a church family. And if you're distributing the elements this morning, then you can come forward and, and prepare. And David, y'all can come up too. I love the way that Christopher Ash talks about how we sing Psalm 2 as Christians. And how we can sing it together as a church family. He says this, he says, the decision to sing or pray Psalm 2 begins with deliberate distancing of ourselves from the rebellion of verses one through three. For we sing it from a distance. We watch, we listen, we consider, perhaps are even tempted to join in in the rebellion again. But we no longer want to be identified with those who speak rebellion in these verses. We hear God's voice and are moved to be warned by the warning and be wooed by the blessing. By the time we end the singing of this psalm, we are kneeling at the feet of God's anointed king to take refuge in him from the wrath to come. We take the Lord's Supper as a faith family to identify with this great king, to kiss the son together, to distance ourselves from the great global rebellion that's taking place against him. Now, for those of you who have not done that, who have not kissed the sun, and you're still taking part in the global rebellion against God and his anointed, that is to say you've never trusted in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for your sins, then we ask that during this time you would let the bread and the juice pass by you. This is a meal for baptized believers who are in good standing with their church. It's for those who have kissed the sun. It's for those who can joyfully look at Psalm 2 and say, I am taking refuge in this one. So those who are dispersing the elements, you guys can come forward and begin doing this. This is our time together to essentially sing through the Lord's Supper. Oh, come, let us adore him.